Hey, isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? I tell you what, Abundant Life family, you guys are absolutely awesome. And words cannot express my gratitude and, and probably the gratitude of the people that you served. And I just want to say thank you, Abundant Life, for doing such an amazing job uh, of serving the city this past week. One of our teachers who attends uh, here and is also a teacher over at one of the schools wrote a letter, and I asked if I could have permission to share this with you. And so take a listen to this. Dear Abundant Life staff and, and serve the city superhero volunteers, as I write this letter, tears of joy, gratitude, thankfulness are streaming down my face. As a teacher at Lynch Meadows, I'm experiencing the impact firsthand that Serve the City mission had on our community. Our staff was at a very low point last spring. Burnout was apparent, spirits low. Our school building and grounds were in disrepair and morale at a low point. But the vision and implementation of Serve the City brought life. September 1st, 2015, joy. As staff members walked from their cars, they noticed the beautifully landscaped grounds. They enter the building and are experiencing the impact of the beautifully painted hallways. Every inch of the newly cleaned building shines and they're blown away. Spirits are lifted, energy abounds, everyone is blessed and on fire to teach and serve our students and families for the 2015-16 school year. Wow, at every turn, there's a new blessing. The bathrooms have been cleaned, painted, decorated, and transformed into beautiful spa-like retreats. The gym cafeteria looks bright, clean, and inviting. The freshly painted, clean staff room is inviting and welcoming. The halls are gleaming. Everything from floor to ceiling looks new. Bam! Teachers walk into the classrooms and they can't believe their eyes. Gift boxes and plants personalized with their names. The abundant blessings continue. Teachers are laughing and crying, hugging, and flying through the building just to see everything. Pow! The Spirit of God can be physically felt in our school building. Administrators tour the building and one stops and tells me she can feel a difference in the building. The prayers of our volunteers are changing hearts and can physically be felt. Zing! As staff members comment on the transformation, there is a common thread of gratitude, joy, thankfulness, and a renewed sense that they are loved and cared for. Many non-believers are taking a new look at Jesus and the church. They are greatly impacted by the church being out in the community and showing the love of Jesus, not just talking about Jesus, but showing that he is alive. Thank you all for sacrificing time, money, energy, and to, to bless our community. And thank you to all of the businesses who took the lead and donated their supplies and expertise. It all looks so professionally done. I can't wait for the students to come next week and to see their reactions. ALC is truly being the hands and feet of our Lord and Savior. Thank you for using your super-serving powers and abundantly blessing our schools. Nancy Finsauce and the Lynch Meadows staff. And so, yeah, isn't that amazing? You just never know the kind of impact that you're going to have on people when, when you get out and serve. And so to all of you who had the opportunity, just under a 1,000 of you 
at Sandy and Vancouver and here in, in the Rockwood District. So thank you so much. Now, with, with the bright spot as that is, with, with every, you know, sometimes with every good thing, there comes kind of a downside to it. You know what I mean? And the downside to us not having services on, on Sunday is that you don't get to hear a sermon, you don't get to worship, and we don't get to take an offering. <laughs> and because of that, we take a pretty big hit to our budget. And, and, you know, you've heard us say from time to time that we really do rely week to week on the tithes and offerings of our church family. And so if God moves in your heart to, to maybe give a little extra this week to help us catch up, maybe some of you couldn't serve for whatever reason and you think, man, I couldn't be there, but maybe I could help out this way. Maybe give a little bit extra this week and you can help us to make up a, a kind of a pretty, pretty big deficit, okay? But thank you so much. Thank you so much for serving and for giving of yourself in, in the way that you did. Today we're starting a brand new series that we're calling With. And I'm indebted to Sky Jathani who actually authored the book With. Get a lot of ideas uh, from, from this book. And, and today and in this series, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to take a look at how do you and I relate to God? In fact, I want you to ask yourself this question as, as I teach this message today. And I'm going to stay really close to my notes because I've got a lot to share with you. I'm going to, I'm going to stretch your thinking, I believe, today. But I want you to ask yourself the question, how do I relate to God? Consider this. The, the museum, Gallup, Placidia in Ravenna, Italy, houses the earliest and best preserved of all mosaics. It's absolutely stunning. But if you were to go there, you would be somewhat disappointed. The structure only has tiny windows, and what little bit of light manages to get through is blocked by a mass of tourists. And what experts say is the most artistically perfect mosaic of the Good Shepherd is hidden by this veil of darkness. However, if you are patient enough, or if you know about the metal box, the coin box along the wall, a tourist may happen along and drop a coin in the box, and all of a sudden, a spotlight unveils this stunning mosaic, illuminating the tiles, but only for a few seconds. For the briefest of moments, the eyes do not have time to take it all in. But for those few seconds, you will hear oohs and, and ahs from the group below. And then the light goes out, and again, there's darkness. Like the tourist in Ravenna seeking a glimpse of the good shepherd. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that many who have sought to know God, to follow Jesus, to come into the Christian faith with great expectations and be disappointed. They've heard the stories of changed lives, stories of the joy of serving and even sacrificing, stories of strength to overcome trials and hardships. They've even heard stories of people who are willing to lay down their lives because of their faith. But once inside the ancient halls of Christianity, is it possible to be disappointed? Where is the light, some may ask? Where's the illumination? Our hearts seek God and his beauty. 
we seek his goodness. We seek his peace. We've been told that, that he offers to us, but he often remains hidden behind the shadows cast by an evil world. Many begin with a sincere desire to know God and to experience his presence in their lives and to be cared for by this shepherd who walks among his sheep. But this is not what they experience. In fact, many give up on Jesus. Or they walk away from the church altogether without seeing a beautiful and enthralling vision of life with God. The lights were never turned on to reveal the beauty that is present just behind the shadows. Instead, they experience a substitute form of Christianity, one that cannot break through the shadows and never really satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. And when their experience of faith leaves them disappointed, they may falsely conclude that Christianity has failed and that it really doesn't work. Unfortunately, many people have settled for a lesser way of relating to God. Consider these examples. I'm going to give you four people. There's Joel. The pastor had not met him before, but Joel happened to stop by his office one day seeking some spiritual advice. A successful man, a successful businessman, middle-aged, he described himself as a Christian with weaknesses for women, for alcohol, and gambling, the latter being the reason for his visit. A run of bad debts was now jeopardizing his business. I'm sorry for your troubles, Joel, but tell me, why have you come to see me? Asked the pastor. I don't go to church, he says, but I know what's right and wrong. I'm concerned that God isn't going to bless my business because of what I've done. I want to make things right with him. I can't afford to have my partners and God against me. Consider Mark. Mark's a very intelligent man. He's a well-read man. In fact, he devoured every business leadership book he could find. Mark also is a pastor. And he was overheard at a church conference saying, the problem with most pastors is they think they are immune to business practices. I can't stand all of the spiritualizing that goes on at these conferences. We're just coming up with all of these excuses for being bad leaders. Do they really expect us just to sit around and pray all the time? I'm not going to let my church die like so many others. Consider Rebecca. Rebecca is a senior at a well-known and respected Christian college. She's about to graduate in just a few months, and, and, and she's wrestling with what to do next. I've always dreamed of going to medical school. And I've got the grades to get in. I'm just not sure I should do it. Why not, her pastor asked her. What's holding you back? I'm not sure that's what God wants me to do. I mean, does the world really need another doctor? I want to do something that is really significant 
with my life. Like what? The pastor asked. Like being a missionary, she said. Maybe God wants me to sacrifice my dream of becoming a doctor. I don't want to just reach the end of my life and feel like I've missed God's true calling on my life. Consider Karen. I don't understand what I did wrong, she said, through her tears. I tried my best to raise my son according to the Bible. Her son was struggling with severe depression and was coping in unhealthy ways. It wasn't supposed to be this way with anger in her voice. We've always tried to honor God in our home. We've always done what is right. We raised our kids God's way on biblical principles. There's even a verse about training up a child in the way he should go. Why is God punishing me? Joel, Rebecca, Mark, Karen, they represent four ways that people relate to God. Four postures of relating to God. And like the tourist in the dark and smelly confines of Galapacitia, most people are ultimately unsatisfied with these four approaches. For example, Joel. His posture in relating to God was life from God. Life from God. Joel was the fast-living businessman. He sought to use God to bless his business. People who relate to God this way, they want blessings from God, but they are not particularly interested in God himself. And then there's Mark. Mark's posture is life over God. Mark's the savvy pastor who leans more into organizational principles than he does into prayer. He didn't have much space for God in his life. The mystery, the wonder, the awe of God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. Rebecca, her posture, her way of relating to God was life for God. With her dreams of medical school in question, Rebecca is primarily concerned with how best to serve God. And this perhaps is the most celebrated of the four ways of relating to God, the four postures, because the most significant life she concluded and she believes is the one expended accomplishing great things for God in his service. And then there's Karen. Her posture, her way of relating to life was life to God, was life under God. As a distraught mother who raised her son by the book, she's quite upset that God didn't uphold his end of the deal. The life of under God posture sees God in simple cause and effect terms and And we obey, and he blesses. We obey, and he blesses. He blesses our life. He blesses our children. He blesses our family. He blesses our nation. Our primary role is to determine what he approves or disapproves of and work diligently to remain in those boundaries. You see, in each of these four postures, these ways of relating to God, what we are doing is we're seeking to use God for our personal benefit. 
And in our world that is so troubled today, traumas within families, the turbulent economy, nations at war, people are turning to God and to his representatives for solutions. And in many cases, it isn't God they actually desire. What they desire is what God can do for them. In each case, people are looking to God as kind of a cosmic therapist or a divine butler. And I have to admit, I have wrestled with each of these. In fact, I continue to wrestle with them. I was raised in the church. I went to church every single Sunday morning, every single Sunday night, every single Wednesday night. Not because I loved God so much, but because I had to. I didn't have any choice. And I was kind of taught, you better go to church or else God's going to be mad at you. You better act right if you want God's blessing in your life. You better not be sinning when God comes back. And that's kind of how I was raised. And so I wonder, what is God's desire? What, what is God's desire for how he wants me to relate to him? Is it from or over or for or under? No, it really is none of those. His desire is that we live life with him. Over and over at Abundant Life Church, you've heard us say that life is all about relationships. First off, a relationship with God and then a relationship with other people. That's why we encourage you to get into a life group. But what about a relationship with God. Let's talk about life with God. When you look at life with God, it's very interesting. When you look through the scriptures, it, there's a very interesting thread that runs throughout the Bible. Life with God finds its origin in the Trinity. The Trinity reveals that, that we worship a relational God who desires a personal relationship with us. God's relational nature is revealed in the Trinity. You see it in John, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. You see, we were created in his image so that we might live in relationship with him. Let's take the Garden of Eden. It was designed to be a collaborative environment where creator and creatures worked together. You could look at the Garden of Eden as kind of a base camp from which Adam and Eve were to extend God's garden to encompass the entire earth. They were intended to partner with God as his representatives on earth. They were instructed to rule over the earth on God's behalf and to cultivate order and beauty. A little bit further into the Old Testament, when God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he said in Exodus chapter 3, I will be with you. And then when God called Joshua to assume leadership after Moses, he made him the same promise that he made to Moses in Joshua 1. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Throughout the Old Testament, and I could show you more examples, God was with his people. When you come to the New Testament, it gets very exciting. When you look at the birth of Jesus, Jesus coming to God coming to this earth, Matthew 1.23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Read this with me, which means God with us. 
the opening verse of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, and then skipping down to verse 14. In the beginning was the one who is called the Word. The Word was with God and was truly God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. And then you go to verse 14. The Word became a human being and lived here with God. Us. I love the message version. It says, he moved into our neighborhood. And, and then you look at Jesus' final words to his disciples. Just before he left this earth, again, the same theme comes out, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am, what's the word? With. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. God's original intent for humanity to live and to rule with him on earth is also displayed in the closing chapters of the Bible. The revelation given to the Apostle John shows history's culmination. Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell where? With them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, as in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, the emphasis of John's revelation is that God and humanity dwell together in relational unity. That's why God created us, and it is to that end that all of history is marching. Just as the first man and woman were intended to rule with God over his creation, the same purpose is affirmed, reaffirmed in the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. And here it is, and they will reign forever and ever. If the Bible were a script for a play, the opening and closing scenes would focus on God's desire to live with and rule with his people. That's God's desire. That's his intent, to be with us. And yet the call to life of intimate communion with God is largely absent today. It's as if we entered the theater late and left before the final curtain. And when we fail to grasp the whole drama of Scripture, including the opening and the closing scenes, we potentially have little vision of what life with God is all about. We must also recognize that we neither live in the Garden of Eden, nor do we live in the New Jerusalem. Our lives and all of recorded history exist between these two paradises. And while the scenes in Genesis and Revelation show a world of beauty and order and life-giving abundance, such things are difficult to find in our experience. We live in a world after Eden and pre-New Jerusalem. And this world is marked by fear, by suffering, by pain and loss. 
We live in a world after Eden and pre-Jerusalem marked by these things. Fear and suffering are the universal human experience. And as a result of this pain and suffering, we also live in a world of fear and control. In fact, every religion is an attempt to overcome this condition. Let's talk about religions for just a moment. It's become very popular to populize, um, to, to make popular, and, and to, to, to minimize the distinctiveness of the different religions by saying that all religions lead to the same destination. All of you have, have seen this uh, illustration before, I'm sure. The picture of a mountain, and you have all of the different religions and their various starting places. But we need not worry that they start at different places because in time all paths lead to God, or so we're led to believe. A more accurate view of this would be to invert the proverbial mountain and make the point of the mountain, the top of the mountain, the starting place for all of us. But in time, they diverge and they splinter. And the reason is because we, we all share this confusion that's marked by chaos in our world. We cannot predict what will befall us. We're all marred by a world of ugliness and injustice and where it appears that evil is winning. And this, this shared reality, this, the nature of the world after Eden and in all of this, this is why we are afraid. And so to mitigate our fear, we seek control over our world. And if we can harness and control unpredictable forces and rule over our circumstances, then we can alleviate our fears, or so we believe. Fear and control are the basis for all human religions. From this common beginning, the path eventually diverges dramatically. And they splinter, and eventually they terminate at different places. But each one is an attempt to overcome fear by exerting control over natural and sometimes supernatural forces. This little excursion into the different religions is important for us to understand the four prominent ways of relating to God from, over, for, and under. Why? Because each of these four ways of relating to God is also an attempt to mitigate our fears by exerting control. But the problem, as we'll see in weeks to come, is that they all fail to deliver. The reason, simply put, is that seeking control is not the solution to the human condition. In fact, seeking control is part of the problem. And you see this so very clearly in the Genesis story. Although God created humanity to live and to rule with him, 
the story in Genesis 3 reveals our reluctance to abide by God's plan. Rather than living and ruling with God, the man and woman sought to be apart from God. And this human quality is captured in this story that's so familiar to all of us. A serpent deceives the man and the woman into eating the fruit of the tree that had been forbidden. You'll see it in Genesis chapter 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, they did not eat the fruit just because it was appetizing and because it tastes good. They ate because they wanted to be like God. It was an act of rebellion, a rejection of God and his plan to rule the earth with his people. And so they no longer merely wanted to be with God. They wanted to be gods. They wanted control on their own terms. The Bible calls this rebellious human desire for control apart from God sin. Our instinct, like all people is to seek self-rule and a posture apart from God. This is why we have such a difficulty grasping the call to simply live with God. That is why most people retain some sense that God is important, that he must be factored into their lives in some way, even if only to control him. But rather than engage in life-giving communion with him, we opt for one of the other four postures through which we try to manipulate, use, cajole, or appease him from, over, for, and under. And since Eden, our human capacity to relate to God properly, to relate with God, has been severely impaired. With the simple explanation of how sin has warped the way we relate to God. And the role of fear and control in human religions, let's go back to the four people I introduced at the beginning. Joel, he lived from God. Remember, he was afraid of losing his business. And this fear brought him to the pastor's office in hopes of getting God back on his side. Joel wanted to use God to control the outcome of his business in hopes of what he could get from him. Mark, he lived over God. An ambitious pastor with an admiration for business principles and organizational management, he feared his church would shrivel away like so many others. And rather than waste his time on unproven practices like prayer, he sought to control the growth of his ministry by employing proven principles and living life over God. Rebecca, she lived for God. Her greatest fear was insignificance. Unlike those who wasted their lives in what she deemed less important careers, she wanted her life to matter. 
She wanted to ensure significance to control the outcome of her life by achieving great things for God. And then there's Karen. She lived under God. A caring mother, a faithful churchgoer, she was afraid that her life and her family would not be blessed. And so to ensure God's protection against the many dangers in this world, she made every effort to control God by her obedience and living under his authority. What all of them lacked was a vision of life with God. Now, you may identify with one or more of these stories. And like them, you may not yet understand what a life with God looks like. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of these four postures and how each risks inoculating us to the good news of Jesus. But I'll start dropping coins into the box to turn the lights on and to illuminate an alternative vision with God, with Write the word with. It's such a small word, yet it contains the essence of the Christian story. I'm going to ask if you'd bow your head and as you consider your relationship with God, would you just stop and think about it for a second? Maybe, maybe you need to confess like I need to confess. God, there are times where my relationship with you, it's, it's nothing more than, than what I can get from you. And God, sometimes I have to confess that I don't put my faith and I don't put my trust in prayer or in, in your, the power of your spirit or how awesome you are, but I put my faith in things that, that kind of put me above you. Proven principles. Maybe some of you would have to confess, you know, God, I, in order to get you to love me, I, I work hard for you. I try to be a good person for you because I want to appease you. I want, I want you to love me. Some of you might need to confess you're living your life under God and you're trying to be obedient and God better uphold his end of the deal or else you're out of here because it doesn't work. And you see, what God wants, he didn't want this relationship from him or over him or for him or under him. That's not what he wants. God created us to be in relationship with him. And so today, would you pray, God, would you help me to understand what it means to just simply be in relationship with you? Help me to understand that and to relate to you in that way. Not to get stuff from you. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and God's knocking on the door of your heart and inviting you to surrender your, your life to him. If that's you today, would you repeat this prayer after me? I'm going to ask you to say this aloud. And for those of you who've made the decision to follow Jesus, would you, in a way of affirming your own faith, and supporting those who may be praying for the first time, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth and living with us. 
and dying for me on the cross. Today I surrender my life to you. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin and my brokenness. And I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. And I pray this in your name. Amen.